This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brent. Finland is known to have an excellent education system. Its high scores on the Program for International Student Assessment have convinced people around the world that Finland is a country worth copying. In 2011, Pasi Sauber detailed Finland's educational reforms that helped achieve these world-class results in his book, Finnish Lessons. As Pasi traveled the world talking about his award-winning book to academics, policymakers, and educators, he was always asked if it was a good idea to copy the Finnish education system. About 10 years ago, when the Finland story really started to evolve around the world, I, I think myself and many of my colleagues and others were in a situation where they were answering in, in a kind of a typical way that there are, five, you know, there are five things that makes Finland great or five things that you know Canadians do. But now I'm not in a position anymore where I could give say to any country that you know if you do what Finland has done or Canadians or others that everything will be fine that's not going to work. Today Posse Sauberg, a regular on Fresh Ed, sits down with me to talk about his latest book Finnish Ed Leadership for big inexpensive ideas to transform education. Finnish Ed Leadership is in some sense a sequel to his earlier book Finnish Lessons. Finnish Ed Leadership offers ideas to make a difference in other schools inspired by Finnish practice. In other words, he provides an answer to those people asking if their country should copy Finland's education system. Pasi Sauberg is a global educational advisor. Pasi Sauberg, welcome back to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will. It's good to be with you. So you travel all around the world to give keynote addresses at various conferences and workshops to different ministries of education all over the world. And in your newest book, you write that at one conference, you found yourself sitting next to George Pataki, who is the former governor of New York, and you were eating lunch together. What did the two of you end up talking about? Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, true, and actually, this is one of the um, motivations to to write a book. I was a speaker in in a conference like him a few years ago, and obviously, because I'm not American, I didn't know him that well. Obviously, I, I have heard a name, and uh, you know, the whole story started. I, I'm I'm not the kind of a guy who does a lot of small talk. So I, but you know, if you have a lunch with American, you have to kind of exercise a little small talk. So my my kickoff for the small talk was to simply ask him that. So what do you think about American education right now, George? Uh, and I I knew that he has an opinion because he, he he's in the top politics and uh, he was just about to run the be the next president of the United States uh, through his party. And uh, so you know, I was I was kind of a, uh, curious to hear what what he says and and. But what he said, actually, his view of American education was not surprising. But it, it was a very negative, very kind of a um, pessimistic view of uh, that there's no hope in you know doing any any of those things that people often you, you know offer in the United States, like improving schools or teachers. You know, his view was much more about just that distract everything and destroy the uh, you know the public system and. And and bring all all these alternative uh, options like uh, you know private control of schools and teach for American and you know, all those things. So it was a it was a kind of a shocking beginning for our conversation there. So the idea of like disruption, right? I mean that's a very common term we hear these days. We want to disrupt schools, like we want to disrupt the taxi economy with Uber. Yeah, exactly, exactly this. And but you know the 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 thing was that I had spent enough time in the U.S. 
in different parts of America. And, uh, you know, I, I hear this type of story in many places that people think that, you know, uh, they kind of believe that public, public education is dead, that there's nothing we can do, that during the last hundred years we have tried everything and nothing worked. So, you know, in a way I understand those people who don't really understand education saying that uh, exactly like in, in taxi transportation business or something else, that let's just do this whole thing away and build this whole new public-private partnership idea that will be more dynamic and effective and you know, based on the, you know, if you if you cannot deliver, then you're dead and, and out of business and somebody else will come. But, you know, as soon as you know a little bit more about history of education and, and how education systems elsewhere work, then, of course, you have a different view. So did George end up asking you about your opinions on, you know, American education for his own sort of, for his education, I guess? Absolutely. And I, you know, afterwards, I took it as a kind of a sign of uh, small talk. I'm not sure that he was really interested in what I was, <laughs> what I was about to say. Uh, but, you know, because my introduction to him was that um, I'm, a, I'm a Finnish citizen, a Finnish educator, and I was teaching at Harvard University at that time. And obviously, I was speaking in the same conference. So he, he kind of felt that he wants to hear. Uh, of course, he had heard about Finnish education. So but, you know, this was a question I, I really didn't want him to ask me after, after, you know, hearing what he had to say about education, because my answer to his question was almost the opposite. That I was, uh, you know, my, my view was so, so it was like a black and white compared to, to what he was saying. And uh, in front of this authority, uh, just the two plates of lunch between us, I was a little bit like afraid that how he would react. And actually my response to him was that, as I, as I write in my book, that um, you know, I, I would rather not talk about American education because there are so many things that I don't understand. And that's a kind of a way how the conversation with him uh, evolved. It was a very interesting conversation afterwards because he got back to me saying that, so what what you don't understand because for him the this the whole solution and strategy of american you know fixing american schools was so clear that just you know do away these old you know fire all the teachers and close down the un underperforming schools and you know just let's make this thing look more like a business and uh, so he he didn't he didn't understand quite why i didn't understand some of these things in american education but that's that's when the real conversation then then really started did you actually tell him more how you see it differently and and if so what were you actually describing to george that made him maybe rethink his own thinking of american education yeah well uh, well you know the, the the main thing i wanted him to really uh, stop and think more that was built into my response to him when he, his question was that what what are those things that I, I don't understand in American education and the, the main thing I said to him uh, that I still firmly believe uh, is important uh, was that that I don't I, I really don't understand why in the United States of America uh, those great ideas and innovations in education really throughout the last hundred years starting from John Dewey and uh, and many others ever since that have made other education systems great, like Finland and Canada and Hong Kong and China and Singapore and you, you name it, that, you know, if you hunt down those key ideas in Finland, for example, that have been critically important in improving uh, how the education system works, they are, most of them are from the US. And I said to, to, to him that, you know, if I look at American education efforts to improve schools, I don't really see any systematic proper use of those same ideas in, in the U.S., that the U.S. works much more with the ideas that many of these higher-performing education systems deliberately try to avoid, like this market-based thinking and uh, 
deprofessionalization, standardization of system. So I gave him, I think, three or so ideas, examples after him asking concretely what, what do I mean, like, for example, cooperative learning that has been a critically important for the Finnish, uh, Finnish school's performance, the whole system performance, and Howard Gardner's uh, theory of multiple intelligences or peer coaching that I also mentioned in the book as one way how teachers can learn effectively to teach differently. And none of those things, uh, they are all known in America, in, in many parts of America, but they've never been part of the kind of a systematic effort of improving the system. Like if you look at the No Child Left Behind or Race to the Top or any recent reforms, there's no sign of these things. So this was my response to him saying that, you know, I, George, I really don't understand why you don't do these things that the world has proven that works, that can be much more effective than any of those things that you were mentioning. So, okay, let me get this straight. So George Pataki is basically asking you for your advice, and you basically respond by saying, what makes Finnish education so great? Because it has that sort of international reputation that all of these other schools want to be like Finnish schools. And you were saying, look, George, a lot of the ideas that Finland uses actually derive from American scholars. And it's strange that American schools don't pick up these ideas that are actually born and raised in the American academy. That's that's what was happening. Yeah, the only thing I, I would probably put a little bit different in your summary is that I am not sure, as I said, whether he really was interested in, in my advice. I think it was I was probably much too junior and unknown person there to be anybody to to give advice. But I, I think that George was in a kind of a very sensitive moment and mood in anyways because he he was obviously running into this very important race uh, to be the next president of the United States. So I I think it would be silly for him to say that you know I don't really care what you've done there because I have my own solution. But but he was very intrigued about this fact. Uh, and I, I saw, again, uh, how, uh, as I described in my book, that he was really disturbed by the fact, by understanding that, hey, wait a minute, so the other countries, like Finland, uh, that they have been using our research, that we have, our taxpayers have paid the research that the Finns then take seriously and put into their education reforms and make their system work. What's going on here? I, I, you know, this is what I saw him thinking every now and then, that is this really real or is, am I dreaming something? But some of the ideas that he was sort of advocating, as you were saying, that sort of deprofessionalization of teachers and the marketization of schools and schooling, those also presumably have a research base, right? Uh, absolutely. And, and there's no question about it. You know, if you, you don't need to spend too much time with any American researcher or research conference when you hear what Americans really know about those things. And that's, of course, a kind of a kind of an interesting thing. And, you know, this research in, in many cases is much more closely read and, and heard by policymakers and educators outside of the United States. And this is one of those things that I, I really don't understand. It's actually built into this my kind of a confusion and inability to understand American education world is that why people are not really taking their own research seriously. Uh, how can it be that in the United States, day in and day out, people, you know, come across great books and research reports and others, and they say, no, this is not, this is not how it goes. But when, when you cross the border just north of uh, the U.S., go to Canada, and you see how differently policymakers, politicians, and everybody takes the, the global international research nowadays, and they consider their findings and, you know, look at the findings of the research 
compared to their own practice and policies. And if they find a kind of inconsistencies there, uh, just like in Finland, that they are they are willing and able to change the course, but not in the U.S. So why is America so unusual in that sense? Like, is it simply ideology? Well, it may be, you know, if you know well, tell me. <laughs> you probably you probably know this better than I do. But th- this is a kind of a sustained uh, confusion in my head that how can it be that the country that you know produces, you know, my kind of a rough estimate is that probably about three quarters of the the educational uh, significant educational research and innovation work still comes from the U.S that why it is not taken more seriously, why why it's so much ignored, why the canyon between those who who know, who do the research and, you know, are so-called experts in America and those who are more ideological politicians or other ways uh, pundits of, um, of in this field, why, why this canyon is so huge, why people cannot really sit down and say, that, okay, let's see what we know. So, But I, I really don't know. And so, I mean, as you travel the world giving these different lectures and running into people like George and maybe making small talk, but also maybe giving some advice and some tips, I would imagine a lot of people do ask you, like, what should our school system do? And so how do you actually respond to that sort of very direct question that's so sort of practical and in many ways kind of erases context, right? Like they're just looking for these very practical technical solutions when we know education is much more complex than that. So how do you actually like manage those sort of conversations as you see different education systems around the world? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. In the beginning, and, and by beginning I mean um, probably about 10 years ago when the where the Finland story really started to evolve around the world. I, I think myself and many of my colleagues and others were kind of a, in a situation where they were answering in, in a kind of a typical way that there are, five, you know, there are five things that makes Finland great or five things that you know, Canadians do. And then you know, we, I, I spoke about the public system and great teachers and uh, purposeful leadership, you know, those common things. And you know, all of them are true. But now when people, and you're right, that you know, people ask me um, all the time these questions that, you know, what should we do based on what you have seen around the world? But my answers have turned into be much more kind of a, you know, emphasizing the complexity and difficulty um, of, of this whole question and the nature of context, the, the places where you are looking at these things like China, for example, Japan, Tokyo, and, and Finland, that they're very different in in, in many many ways, and you know some of those things that work in work well in Finland or in other other places may not necessarily work at all in some other, some other places. So I think my answer has really turned to be much more like you know looking at the general things like don't rush the reform. That this is one of those things that that I, I have used a lot. That to rush the educational reform is to ruin it. This is really one of those things that is behind Finland's uh, success. And of course, their leadership overall, the sustainable nature of leadership is one of those important things rather than trying to identify some other things. But then, you know, the thirdly, my kind of a emerging thing that I'm working on more and more now is that um, I, I also try to, if i about to give any advice to anybody, I say that please try to understand that, you know, a big part of those things that really make education system work or children learn in, in within the systems are probably those things that we find outside of the school, that they are not about curriculum or pedagogy or education or leadership, any of those things. So like in Finland, for example, that they, they are things that 
are related to what the families do. It's a, it's a more the other social policies and healthcare and youth policies and sports and arts and many other things. The library network, uh, you know, all all those things and you know that the children are exposed to when they're not in school are important. And this is something that we know very little about. I know that there are some other other scholars and other people who are also kind of stressing this importance of, you know, out of school factors, all those things that kids have or don't have when they are not not in school. But you know, putting briefly this uh, this question of yours is that, you know, I I have kind of a shifted away from giving a kind of a concrete answer of five or seven things that, you know, make education systems work, to much more complex things, but still trying to. You know, emphasize the fact that you know te- teachers and people who work in schools they have to be professionals. They have to be you know properly trained. Uh, the curriculum in a school you know must be designed in a way that teachers and students increasingly have a voice on that. Education policies have to have equal emphasis on equity and you know excellence or quality of you know those types of things. But I'm not in a position anymore where you know I, I could give say to any country that you know if you do what Finland has done or Canadians or others that everything will be fine that's not going to work. Yeah, it's interesting to think about this notion of the the school is kind of within this larger social ecology because it, I mean in many ways it almost feels like often people in the field of education narrow education down to schools and you know education happens in so many other parts and is impacted by so many other parts outside of school that we you know we need to broaden that definition away from that narrowness of school absolutely will and and now you know what i see emerging that is also part of part of this book that we are talking about here is the more important role of well-being and health of children and that's of course something that this, you know schools can do something in order to improve well-being and and health and happiness of children but you know in most education systems probably the big part of that comes from homes and societies and communities and you know other things and that's where we really begin to understand you know how important the the surrounding world around the school is it's much more easier to kind of argue that you know what children learn in physics or what they learn in mathematics probably mostly happens in school that the very few kids actually study mathematics by themselves so you know if you're measuring what the kids how they advance or progress in mathematics or physics or history or foreign languages it's easy to argue that you know this this impact is pretty much by teachers and schools and you know the, all those things but you know health and well-being and happiness and engagement you know those things are much more complicated and complex uh, complex things and that's that's why i think we are just entering this phase when we are more and more often asking this question that you know how important the 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 world around the school is when we are educating our kids and it seems like implied in that answer you just gave it that what we measure and how is really going to have to change away from just looking at how students are doing on content knowledge on certain subjects absolutely and that's going to happen within the next five years i guess So another idea I hear you talking about a lot and that you've written about in this new book is small data. Can you just tell me what you mean by small data? Yeah, small data, you know, it's interesting because I've been I've been talking about that a lot during the last year. Um and I often hear when I ask these people uh, this question from people always uh, if I have a chance that, you know, my question goes like this that um how how would you explain what small data is to a 9-year-old 
And then I ask people to raise their hands if they feel comfortable, you know, doing that in the next 30 seconds. And normally I don't see any hands that people are kind of a, uh, confused by this concept. And when I push them a little bit and say that, so what is in your mind when you think about small data? Some people say that maybe it's just a little bit less of big data. And uh, of course, that's not the case. But, you know, it brings me to this. The, the answer of your question is that, you know, what I've seen uh, with many of my colleagues working in the same field is that that we are having more and more responses now to educational challenges and issues um, through the solutions that one way or the other in, include using the, the big data. Like in some ways, you, you know, you can take a look at the OECD PISA system as a big data solution for education systems. But then there are many other things like learning analytics and, you know, all these algorithms and smart machines and, you know, assessment procedures that are done by, you know, based on machine, um, you know, grading and many other things. And at some point we kind of stop with my colleagues and say, so how should the educators respond to all this, you know, this emergence of uh, big data in, in their world and, uh, in the classrooms, really, this is this is what you can see now. If you go to any edutech conference, you, you see these all these fancy solutions that promise everything. You know, enhancing achievement and you know closing the achievement gap and reducing dropouts and you name it. So we came up about with this idea that you know maybe better way than just say that big data is a bad idea and big data should stay away from schools because we don't like it is to come up with an idea that would be kind of more like a complementary to, to big data because I, I do think that there are some things that we can certainly do much better with um, with uh, big data and you know all these solutions that come with it but if it goes too far you know if, if we are beginning to judge the the destiny the future of children based on the the big data and algorithm uh, in the school uh, that is now the case. Some cases that you, you the, the machines can predict what the ten-year-old will be in the future based on what they do in a school. Uh, that's where we say you know this is not probably the how education works. And uh, you know our response to this is that you know small data is important. The small data is, is is about you know all these tiny little clues that you can find in the situation like classroom or school, for example, through observing you know. When you sit down in a classroom and you look around at what's going on here, you know why 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 the kids and teachers why, why why these people are doing these things and why why this classroom is organized this way and you know what's going on here that no machine the machines are much worse to do that and and that's why you know the small data is it's about observing and collecting information and evidence through professional wisdom and experience of educators when it comes to uh, comes to education. So the, the same thing, you know, small data is now emerging also in health healthcare, that there are research institutions like in Sydney, Australia, there's a, there's a first research institute on health that is based on small data. That is the same thing that the doctors, the medical experts are kind of looking for these tiny little clues uh, in the, the way the patients um, live and, you know, what they do in order to understand what would be good for them to live healthier lives. And so the the, the small data is really is, is a, is like a response to this emerging wave of big data that is coming, you know, knocking on the doors of the schools. And we believe that it's a better response than simply, you know, raise your hands up and say, that don't come here, this is a school and there's no, no room for big data here because big data is going to do that anyway. You know, if we, if we don't have a good narrative, if we are not able to, you know, say why do we need a professional that you know the evidence evidence and decisions based on professional 
wisdom and experience uh, that only teachers and leaders, educators can have, then, then of course we will be also very quickly replaced by machines. I mean, as a researcher, it's just so straightforward to me, right? I'm a qualitative researcher and this idea that you can get rich sort of qualitative findings through, you know, in a sense, small sample sizes, right? We don't need that many people. We don't need big data. We don't need big statistical quantitative methods to answer some very important questions uh, that we have about social life, including school. And, And in many ways, you know, even through one individual, observing one individual's behaviors and social relations and interactions, we can actually theorize a lot of what's going on, right? So it's a, it's, for me, it's kind of like a no-brainer. Yeah, it is. But, you know, I have done this experiment again in my talks and workshops. I have a little video clip that is about two minutes. Um, it's a one solution that promises um, improved achievement and reduced dropout in the system if you rely on this it's a it's a kind of a smart machine algorithm that is um, looking at how children uh, answer the um, uh, kind of a multiple choice uh, questions and the price of this one will probably be few hundreds of thousands of dollars or something like this but you know if the promise is this and uh, what they can show now is that when this has been used in some of the states or districts what has happened that you know everything all the curves go up then of course the you know even if it's a no-brainer for you and me then you will have somebody there who is held accountable i'm talking about the authorities in the system and uh, he or she has promised to you know do all these miracle improvements in the system and uh, this person knows that it's probably very difficult to do that by you know just you know talk to people teachers and say that try a little bit harder so so it's a it's a very very likely thing that this will happen you know globally uh, worldwide that pe- people will end up you know stepping into these solutions that promise you a lot and and probably it will you know probably you will you know see improvement in the in the results but has nothing to do very little to do with learning actually you know how the kids uh, what type of children do we get out of the system just like you said that you know education is much uh, it's much more about relationship it's much more about you know understanding who we are and you know how we learn and what we're going to do and that's again that's where the machines are much more worse than humans and and the big data is limited you know big data has a limited power in in doing these things that we can do and that's again where the the huge opportunity for small data is so i want to ask a little bit about this i guess this idea that finland is sort of one of the countries that other countries should be looking towards to fix their, you know, supposedly failing education systems. Like, where did this myth of Finland come from? And do, do you actually think it's true? Is there truth in it? Or is, you know, is it just a myth? No, I think, uh, as I write in my book, that there are some very dangerous myths about Finland that, you know, everybody should avoid. And that's why I, I use it as a kind of a fourth big idea for any education system to to try to get better is to stay away from these myths that they, they often hear about Finland. Some of those very dangerous things are things like there's no homework in Finland that you, that people have seen in uh, documentary films uh, and read in the newspapers around the world. You know, I've met education system leaders personally asking me whether it would be a good idea in their own system to do what Finland has done and, you know, make homework illegal and and that would be extremely harmful crazy crazy thing to do then of course the other thing uh, the very common myth about finland is that 
the country is uh, doing away teaching subjects, that in the future there will be just a kind of a themes or topics or kind of a projects that we do. And that's, that's again, as I describe in the book, is, is not true at all. So there's a kind of a set of these misunderstandings and myths of, uh, you know, what Finland is doing. It's often simply because of the poor journalism that, uh, you know, sometimes people write these stories without visiting the country or really talking to anybody. Sometimes, you know, want to put forward these crazy ideas to make the headlines. But what I've learned through, you know, working on this book and um, and actually several of my books is that it's, it's a very difficult to understand, really understand any education system, whether it's a Japanese system or Finnish American, to the point that you would be able to really have a good conversation about, you know, why this system works in a way it does. And and that that's why it's, it's a very easy to come up with these myths of you know this and that saying that you know that you know that's what the system is doing but i i think you know this said i i think that there are also some very useful and interesting things in finland's education system as in many other probably most education systems have something interesting that they do that others are not really doing but of course because everybody has been paying so much attention to finland you know this uh, the, the the work to fi- identify these things here in in uh, in finland has has been much more active than in in the systems for example where nobody nobody's interested in you know asking these things and you know that's why you know that's that's why i think that they, we have to be very careful in you know identifying those things uh, that are can be helpful and and this book finished leadership is is uh, actually i i wrote it because there were people asking that so so if this is not true, what I read in the news or see in the, in the films or documentaries, is there anything I can do if I if I'm inspired by what Finland has been doing? And uh, and obviously it's not possible that you you could have a well performing system education system by accident. That they are they are always uh, it's you know it's the same with Japan and Canada and Finland and other countries that there, there's always something there that the system has done to get there. It it cannot be explained by just being good by accident. It's not possible. So in your conversation with George Pataki at this conference a few years ago, this small talk that you're having, and so maybe George didn't necessarily learn anything from you, right? This was just small talk. But did you learn anything from George? Well, I'm I'm kind of an optimistic person. I always try to learn everything from the occasions. And um, you know, of course, you know, I, I spent a good part of my life also in, not in politics, but policy world. And policy work is always very closely linked to politics. And I, I guess what I learned from George, again, is that, you know, how easy it is to, you know, hide behind your kind of a political power and your political influence and political experience uh, when it comes to education, that you can you, can, you can find this rhetoric very easily. And I, I kind of admired him when when I listened to his uh, keynote at the conference, how an experienced politician, you know, even after this 45 minutes that we had, where, when he heard something that went almost 180 degrees against what he was thinking and believing, but he can still walk to the podium and, you know, speak about these things exactly as he spoke to me, that, you know, what what is the problem uh, in America? And, you know, it's all about bad teachers and, you know, we have to fire them and America deserves much better and, you know, all these things that you must have some skills to be able to do that. And that I would be also probably much better in my own work if I had some of these, some of these skills of, you know, how to communicate and, you know, talk about these things. But, uh, of course, he, he didn't say much about, you know, what, what I hadn't heard before. 
So that's not. Um, I didn't leave the, the the conversation by saying that. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't. You know, I didn't think about that. That it was all about more like a convincing that you know how important for us all it is to find a kind of a good story, a good conversation, and and something that you know can stop people for a while and make them think. I you know this is a mystery to me whether George really. Whether he remembers this conversation, and if he remembers the conversation, whether he remembers it in the same way than I do, he probably tells the same story to his colleagues, saying that you know this Finnish guy uh, was exactly in the same wavelength with me, and you know he he spoke about these things uh, in, in in the same way. I don't know, but anyway, I think the conversation is is, is good to have that, and it's great that we we had the conversation without having this lunch with George. I probably would never have written this book as it is right now. Well, Pasi Sauberg, thanks so much for joining Fresh Head again. It's always a pleasure to talk. Thank you, Will. Thanks so much. Pasi Sauberg is a global educational advisor. His latest book is Finnish Ed Leadership: Four Big, Inexpensive Ideas to Transform Education. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zung. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.